Right. Well, good morning. Um, let me uh, say welcome uh, and uh, that I'm glad to be with you today. Uh, my wife, Kara, and I arrived at Incarnation in 2013. Uh, we showed up our first Sunday uh, in Harrisonburg to here, and we've never been anywhere else. Uh, we were in, in, in Essentials with Sean and with uh, the Browns before they were the Browns. And uh, who else was in there? Lots of people. Anyways, we're glad to be here. Um, and as Drew said, uh, I attend a lot of uh, birthday parties in this stage of life. Um, the last one that I was at was uh, with my daughter. There were 14 children under five there. And I am now pushing for quarterly birthday celebrations um, <laughs> because of, of that. Um, so you may, you may know of, of what happens at birthday parties, but if you hop up children on sugar and you overstimulate them, uh, maybe it's best to speak in the passive voice. Uh, mistakes are made. Um, <laughs> bubbles are stolen. Teddies are shoved. Um, and so I, I noticed something that happens at birthday parties, and I think that this will be a good analogy to start off today. Um, so sometimes the, the infraction is quite grave, and so the, the child gets disciplined. And then there's a moment right after that where the child is about to be reintegrated <laughs> back into the herd. Uh, and the, uh, the parent... <laughs> calls the child aside a lot of times and explains to them the family vision of life again and how that vision pertains to their particular actions. And it goes something like this. Um, you, you use both the stick and the carrot in this scenario. You say, if you will obey, if you will act right, there will be ice cream and cake and lollipops and pizza and movie night. You can stay up as long as you want. But if you don't obey... If you hit Teddy again, um, over my dead body. Uh, and, then, and then maybe you get on one knee to get on the child's level and you cup their face in their hands and you say, please, 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 choose life so that you and your descendants may live and prosper in the land. Um, so, so I begin with that analogy because I think that that's where we're going uh, to today uh, in Deuteronomy 30, if you'll go there with me. Uh, the moment in Israel's history uh, that I've just described <laughs> is basically like this birthday party. Um, this is the moment where Yahweh looks Israel in the face and says, uh, please, please, please choose life uh, in, in Deuteronomy 13, or 30 verse 15. And uh, I, I think it's really important that we pay attention to this because as Tom Wright has said, if you want to have a prayer at understanding what Jesus and Paul are saying in the New Testament, you have to understand what is going on in especially the second half of Isaiah and in Deuteronomy, especially chapters 27 through 30, which is where we're at today. So there's a, a fair amount of pressure for us to get this right. It's really critical. Um, so, so let's start with the, the basic structure. The Deuteronomy uh, comes in three parts. There's an initial speech by Moses, and then there's a middle chunk of laws, and then at the end there's another speech by Moses that kind of gives them this ultimatum. And uh, Moses in the middle section rearticulates the Ten Commandments and explains again to a new generation uh, the laws of the covenant of Abraham. And in the first three chapters, Moses reminds them uh, that Yahweh, the maker of heaven and earth, made a covenant with Abraham and promised him three things. He promised him descendants that would outnumber the stars. He promised him a land. And he promised him that his family would be the family through which God was going to heal the whole cosmos. Um, and then because of that, his family was going to be a blessing to the nations. And if you've read much of the first five books of the Bible, you'll know that Abraham's family is a sorry bunch of individuals. Um, they constantly fail to keep their 
responsibilities to Yahweh. But despite that, the, the dominant note in the, in the Torah is that Yahweh's, command, or Yahweh's commitment to his covenant is unshakable. It, it's a runaway freight train, uh, and it will stop for nobody or nothing. And now, in Exodus, what happens is that the Israelites get freed uh, from their slave masters in Egypt. And Yahweh does this by humiliating the Egyptian gods. He baptizes them, as Paul says, in the Red Sea. And then they come to Mount Sinai and, and they receive the law, which is really the fleshing out of what this covenant is supposed to look like. It's, it's the laws of the kingdom. And what's important that you see is that all of Yahweh's laws spring from the fact that he has a special relationship with Israel and that his just and beautiful kingdom can only come if his citizens of his kingdom come to abide by his laws. Uh, you, you may remember that the Ten Commandments don't begin with the first command, uh, you shall have no other gods but me, but they actually begin with the statement of this relationship. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. It's a relationship. And so the other nations, in contrast to Israel, do not have this special relationship with Yahweh, and they don't know his laws. Uh, the psalmist writes about this in Psalm 147, uh, verse 20. The psalmist says that Yahweh declares his word to Jacob, his statues and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. It, it's, a, it's a given. It's a default that the other nations aren't going to abide by Yahweh's commands. But Israel has a relationship, and so there are expectations that flow from this relationships. And so what I'm driving at, actually, is that I think that one of the most important interpretive moves for you to make when you read the Old Testament is that you have to come to see Yahweh's laws not as a pharisaical, frustrating obligation, but a blessing that sets Israel free. And this starting point will put the rest of the Torah in context because when Israel grumbles and curses God's provision or builds false gods, God, like a good father, disciplines them for it. And when their faithlessness reaches this climax and they come to the land of Canaan and they refuse to go in because there are giant people and giant fortresses therein, you have to see that their refusal to go into the land is an act of grave wickedness. It's not a logical fear. It's a choice for them to do something that's completely antithetical to the Abrahamic covenant. And it's a choice that's antithetical for God bringing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And so for that disobedience, Israel gets the greatest punishment in its history. Exile in the desert for 40 years until an entire generation of people dies off. Now, Flip with me to Deuteronomy chapter 4, because when Moses begins talking to this new generation, he sets it in this context. He says, And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them so that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. Now, skip down to verse 5. See, I have taught you the statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them. For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this is a great nation, this wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to them as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as the law that I set before you today. And then, two chapters later, in chapter 6, uh, we get what's called the Shema. It's the most important passage in the Jewish Torah. It's in Deuteronomy in chapter 6. And, and you've heard it before. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, or, or the Lord is God alone. 
you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. This is the same passage that we just read in our liturgy. It's the same passage that Jesus goes to in the story on the Good Samaritan uh, that, we, that Drew read for us. Um, and, and the point is, is that all of the laws that Moses is about to give them, all of the terms and conditions hang upon that command. So when he gives them the laws, then comes you know, this fleshing out period, and then comes chapter 28. And Moses has the Israelites engage in this super interesting ritual. He has half of the Israelites, six of the tribes, go climb a mountain. It's called Mount Gerizim. That's about one mile away from another mountain called Mount Ebal, where the other half go. <laughs> and he basically has them shout the, the blessings and the curses of the covenant at each other over this mountain. It's kind of like responsive reading, like we do in the liturgy. Um, and the blessings that follow... If Israel will obey, Yahweh are amazing. We don't have time to read all of chapter 28, but it goes something like this. They'll be blessed in the city and in the country. They will have many offspring. The ground will produce. Their flocks will grow. Their bread baskets will be full. Their enemies will be defeated. Everything they touch will prosper. Uh, If you want to look at one one passage in chapter 28, verse 13, Moses uses this Jewish idiom that if Israel will obey, he says, Yahweh will make the Israelites the head and not the tail, um, which I interpret as uh, you get to be the lead dog. And if you're not the lead dog, the scenery never changes, right? They get to be the lead dog. It's really, it's, it's really quite, you know, it's so blunt. But the curses that await Israel are as terrible and horrifying as the blessings are amazing. If they don't obey, they'll be cursed in the city and in the country. Their ground won't produce. Their flocks won't increase. Their enemies will overtake them. They'll suffer from the plague and disease. They'll plant vineyards and they won't get to drink the wine. Their children will be kidnapped and enslaved by enemy nations. Their wives will be raped. They'll be exiled and subjugated and humiliated. And I, I almost can't even tell you the most horrible thing that it says, but I'm going to anyways. It says that when other nations come and besiege Israel, the most tender and refined man in Israel, will slaughter and eat his own child and will refuse to give any of the flesh of the dead child to keep his remaining children alive. That's what is awaiting if these people choose not to obey. It's, it's, it's unimaginably awful. And we find out that that's exactly what happened. So the important thing to see in this shouting ritual, though, is that the blessings and curses that they're shouting back and forth at each other apply to the same three categories as the covenant blessings applied to Abraham. It's about descendants, it's about the land, and it's about being a blessing to the nation. And and there's a telltale clue for this. Look at chapter 28, verse 37. This is where the clue shows up that says, hey, pay attention to Abraham. Moses warns Israel in chapter 28, verse 37, That if it disobeys Yahweh, it will become a horror, a proverb, and a byword among all the peoples where the Lord your God will lead you astray. Remember remember the promise is that if, if, if Abraham's people are to be a blessing to the world, right? So now they're not a blessing as they're a horror. Everybody's like, stay away. Why on earth would we want to become like you? It's an inversion of the blessing. Now, that's a lot of context. But I think we have to know the context because when we come to chapter 30, Verses 11 through 14, I'm afraid if we don't know the context, we'll read what Yahweh says there through Moses uh, with cynicism and incredulity rather than humility and faith. So let's read together verses 11 through 14 in chapter 30. 
This is the commandment that I command to you today. is not too hard, neither is it far off. It's not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. See, I think that that's the kicker for us post-Reformation Christians who have come to this passage. We've just heard 600 laws of Yahweh, and we go, that's impossible. (laughs) There's no way we're keeping this. Love God totally. Always take care of the poor and the immigrant and the widow. Never covet your neighbor's stuff. Are you kidding? (laughs) And And then... And especially for us New Testament people, I think it's even harder because we have all these passages in the New Testament where it it says how hard it is to follow Jesus, right? Take up your cross and go outside the gate and die with me in shame. Doesn't Paul say that he does what he doesn't want to do and he doesn't do what he wants to do? Only perfect people can keep a rein on their tongue. Doesn't God just know that he's working with broken toys and he shouldn't expect too much? And That's how we're wriggling out of our obligation for what's in Deuteronomy. It's a move that's all too familiar. We we say things like this. We say, the Old Testament is about law and the New Testament is about grace. Isn't it lovely that we don't have to keep all that stuff anymore? And that just gets us into a bigger pickle. Because when we come to what Jesus is saying, it seems like he takes all of that quite seriously. In fact, more seriously than they did in the Old Testament. And he's always ratcheting things up. It's not just enough for you to forgive your brother. You have to forgive him. 70 times 7, even if he's your mortal enemy. And you can't hate him in your heart either. (laughs) That's way harder. And so if you read the Bible like this kind of broken, discontinuous story, you get a broken gospel out of it. And we minimize the fact that God expects the citizens of his kingdom to live by the laws of the kingdom. And the second temptation, I think, that arises is when Moses tells Israel that the the laws aren't too complicated or hard to obey, is is the temptation to use one part of the Bible to explain away another part of the Bible. Um, I I learned this lesson in college because I had a professor whose name was Judd Davis, uh, and he he actually goes to Robbie Holt's church, who uh, did our parish retreat um, a couple years ago. Judd was giving a devotional on the two verses right after the Lord's Prayer, which read this way, Uh, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive yours. Uh, Now, now as far as I know, Dr. Davis was a a lifelong Presbyterian, and he had uh, no intention of sabotaging uh, our security of salvation in the resurrection of Christ. But what he said is something I'll never forget. He, He gave us this warning. He said, we should sit with the terrifying fact that if we refuse to forgive the inexcusable in others, God will refuse to forgive the inexcusable in us. And we shouldn't run away to go find a verse to explain that away. The point is that God expects his children to share his affections and aversions and to act on them. So how does this apply to us today? Um, This is hard. (laughs) It's very hard. I I think there are two things that will help, though. And And the first one is this. Living by God's ways is hard, but living by the laws and the ways of other gods is miserable and degrading, and it will break you and will destroy you. Look, look with me again at verse 11. The commandment is that I command you today is not too hard, neither is it far off. It's not in heaven 
so that you should say, who will go to heaven for us and bring it, that we may hear it. It's not beyond the sea. All, all of these sort of idioms are uh, idioms pointing to the fact that in the Mesopotamian stories and Proverbs, the gods were at a huge distance and remove away from their creation. And so only the gods could ascend to the heaven. Only, only the gods could cross the sea. You, you, I mean, think about this. In a Bronze Age culture, I mean, you're going to go across the ocean? How far is that? It's impossible, right? And the point in this passage is that the chasm between the gods, the Mesopotamian gods, and their creation is very vast. But, but Yahweh's commands aren't esoteric. They're not unintelligible. You can get them. <laughs> They're clear. Don't steal. <laughs> you know, two words. You, you can hang with this, okay? Um, respect the Sabbath. Don't work. Um, honor your mother and father. And, and I think that it's important to see as well that Israel's laws at the time were on the cutting edge of taking care of the poor. These are phenomenally generous and kind laws. I mean, would you have really preferred to live in Babylon under Hammurabi's code? The eye for the eye, the tooth for the tooth? Where retribution just carried on for generations and people were cut apart? Is, is that what you would have preferred? Would you prefer there to be no social net, safety net to help the poor? Israel was commanded to give their tithes to take care of the poor and to treat the, the immigrant with respect and kindness. Yahweh's commands bring life and peace and the ways of other gods bring death and destruction. That is the emphatic point of the whole Old Testament. And the second thing that I think is important to see is that Yahweh's relationship to the Israelites is one of parentage and not one of slavery. The Mesopotamian gods treated their creations like their slavery but Yahweh is Israel's parent. And parents, because they exist in a close relationship with their child, they can look their child in the eye and say, this isn't too hard for you. <laughs> I know you can do this. And I'm going to help you do it. Um, look with me at Deuteronomy 30, verse 1. And when all these things come upon you, the blessings and curses that I've set on you, and you call to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice, that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you. And from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed that you may possess it again. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. The Lord will circumcise your heart in the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. See, see, who's doing the heavy lifting in this passage? It's not the Israelites, it's Yahweh, right? Yahweh's the one who's going to bring them into the land. Yahweh will gather them. Yahweh will circumcise their heart. Yahweh will make them prosperous. Yahweh will put the curses on the enemies. See, God promises that when his people can scrounge together a mustard seed worth of faith and obedience, that he will help them obey. And it's exactly what Paul says to the Corinthians when they get out of sorts. He says, he reminds them, right? He reminds them of this story. Obey. Stop doing that. Do you not remember that the faithless generation's bodies are scattered in the desert, even if they were baptized, even if they ate and drank of the rock? Uh, who is Christ? Their bodies are in the, in the desert. Shape up. But then you know, six verses later, he says, no temptation has overtaken you what is common to man. 
But God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. And with the temptation, he will provide a way of escape so that you can endure it. See, the point is that good parents know what their kids can handle. And they help them obey until they can handle more. Um, and come to love the king and the kingdom with their whole heart. It, I think that this is a good metaphor. It's like this. We're all four-year-olds, and we've been told to clean up our Legos, which seems like uh, a giant task until you realize that the Father is helping you, and his hands are impossibly large. Um, and eventually you get better at cleaning. Uh, and more importantly, you come to love the feeling of a clean room. See, one of the best commentators on this theme in the Bible said, the command, be perfect, is not idealistic gas, nor is it a command to do the impossible. God is going to make us into creatures that can obey his command. He said in Psalm 82 that we were gods, and he is going to make good his word. If we let him, he will make us the feeblest and filthiest of us into a god or goddess, a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature pulsing all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine, a bright stainless mirror that reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that's what we're in for. Nothing less. He meant what he said. See, I think we have to catch the line in verse 14 of chapter 30 that Yahweh has put his word into Israel's mouth and heart. Sounds like John to me, right? With the word of Yahweh in our mouth and in our heart, we can obey. We can forgive our enemies. We can fight for the poor. We can put to death our greed and covetousness and malice and hatred and lying. And if we have to, we can take up our cross and die. Um, Because with God as our father and with Christ as our brother and advocate uh, and with the spirit as our helper and guide living within us, we've overcome the world. And all things are possible. Let's pray.